I recently made a rare find on eBay. It's an audio recording from 1902 meant to be played on an original Edison phonograph. Now, I don't have one of those at home, but I tracked one down, loaded this century-old plastic cylinder on the machine, lowered the needle, and, and it was like being transported back in time. I wanted to hear this music because it's a relic from a very strange era. During this period of history, right around 1900, the Earth went crazy for Mars. Martians at this time, they didn't just exist in science fiction. Many people thought they might be real, that the Red Planet really was home to an advanced civilization. Well, Martians showed up everywhere in in vaudeville skits and Broadway plays and novels and comic strips, in the news pages of newspapers and in song. So this musical composition, it was titled A Signal from Mars. The turn of the 20th century was a propitious moment for this type of thinking to take off, uh, really because there were enough observations of Mars at that point that were suggestive that something uh, really unique and remarkable was taking place on that planet. This is William Sheehan. He's co-author with Jim Bell of a new book called Discovering Mars, A History of Observation and Exploration of the Red Planet. Bill Sheehan will be my guest today for the inaugural episode of this new podcast. I'm David Barron, and this is Space on the Page from the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. This podcast explores outer space in literature, in science, and in the human imagination. I'm an author, and I spent part of 2021 as the Baruch S. Blumberg NASA Library of Congress Chair in Astrobiology, Exploration, and Scientific Innovation. In that role, I conducted research for a book I'm writing. It's about Mars and how that small planet came to play such an outsized role in our collective psyche. I'll be your host for the first three episodes of this podcast, and you'll hear me talk to other authors of recent Mars books about our society's magical visions of that planet in the past, present, and future. Well, today we focus on the past, specifically the time of the Mars craze at the turn of the 20th century, and we feature my conversation with author Bill Sheehan. Now, where my book will examine Mars in popular culture, Bill's book looks at the science. So I asked him to explain what it was about astronomy in the late 1800s that led people to believe in an intelligent civilization on Mars. Bill says it all started when telescopes grew powerful enough to show the surface of Mars in considerable detail. The best views of Mars uh, suggested that it was an Earth-like planet with continents and seas. Um, There were dark areas which seemed to be tinted either bluish or greenish in color, and the other areas were ochre or uh, in some people's uh, interpretation, tinted brick red. We could see details, uh, including the icy polar caps, uh, which were dazzling white, uh, suggested there was water on Mars. We could watch those melt. Hmm. And uh, that created a real compelling illusion that Mars, uh, from a distance, looked a lot like the Earth would, uh, seen from a similar distance. 
But the big turning point really was 1877. Uh, there was a really good opposition uh, that year. And just to say opposition, meaning that's the period when Mars is opposite the sun in our sky. And that's when Mars yep. is, comes closest to our planet and we can see it best. Yeah, precisely. Uh, and because Mars has a, a quite an ellip- elliptical orbit, eccentric uh, ellipse, some oppositions are quite a bit better than others. And uh, this one in 1877 was close to the best that uh, Mars could be seen. Uh, it was only 35 million miles or 56 million kilometers away. <laughs> but anyway... Um, close by Mars standards. 35 close by Mars, Mars standards. And uh, an astronomer named Giovanni Schiaparelli, who was at the Brer Observatory in Milan, had a really sharp eye but also was colorblind and uh, only had one good hmm. eye. Huh. Uh, and, and he mapped Mars showing all sorts of linear uh, features, which he called canali. And so, and these linear features, they, they evolved over time, but they got, they, on his maps, they seemed to get straighter and straighter. And they right. were like yep. these arrow straight lines crisscrossing the planet. Yeah, his first map showed them as uh, some, somewhat more streaky and uh, curved. But over time, as you suggest, uh, they became more and more regular, uh, geometric, and uh, you know, resembled sort of a cobwebbing of the planet, um, uh, which uh, was really uh, unnatural looking. I mean, it didn't look like the kind of features that one would expect uh, to, to arise from natural processes like geology or meteorology. And uh, and also, uh, although more is made of this than probably is uh, justified, uh, the term canali, which in Italian can mean a number of things, including channels, uh, which was probably Schiaparelli's preferred translation, um, was translated into canals. Uh, and, you know, this was during the period when the Suez Canal had just been built. Um, you know, the um, there were there was a lot of canal building going on in the United States. So canals were a big deal, uh, like railroads. You know, they were sort of on the cutting edge of 19th century technology at the time. And uh, so, the, you know, the, the whole canal uh, building craze on the earth uh, ended up perhaps inevitably being transferred onto the surface of Mars as uh, an indication that they were about the same things that we were. Right. So here you've got this Italian astronomer, Schiaparelli, who creates this map. He calls these features. He could have called them anything. He could have called them lines. He calls them canals. And and so there is a period where there seems to be some joking about, oh, there are these canals on Mars. But my sense is uh, that for a while, it really wasn't taken all that seriously that they were canals. Right. Uh, I mean, Schiaparelli himself, who introduced the nomenclature that's still the basis of that used today, uh, said that all of these terms that he introduced on his map, including ca- uh, canali, were, were just terms of convenience. You know, they weren't meant to be taken seriously. And in fact, some of the features uh, that became part of the canal classification, he actually called rivers. So just to complete the the story of Schiaparelli and what came next. So Giovanni Schiaparelli in Milan, uh, he's come up in 1877. He begins his work mapping Mars. 17 years later, another important character comes into the story. And who was that? Well, there were a few, but the one you're talking about is Percival Lowell, I think. Right. 
He was an interesting person uh, from the standpoint that he came from this very um, prominent family and Boston, very intellectual family. Uh, so, uh, you know, so these he, were the Lowells of Massachusetts, yep. very wealthy, very prominent. And, and very influential in the Boston um, uh, culture, uh, not, not only from a standpoint of business interests, which they, of course, had uh, in very developed form, but also uh, his grandfather was on the board that chose the presidents of Harvard, had a lot of influence over, over Harvard. Uh, his brother became the president of Harvard. And, uh, you know, the cousins and so forth were involved in all sorts of uh, intellectual thing. One of his cousins became a leading meteorologist. A uh, sister became uh, Amy Lowell, a poet. Um, a couple of other sisters mm. married prominent financiers. So they, they had tentacles in every aspect of uh, Boston life. Uh, and one of the things about Lowell, he went to Harvard, after so this going, is Percival Lowell again. Right. He was seen as uh, just unbelievably brilliant and promising. So so he was not an astronomer. He was, certainly was not a professional astronomer. He may have he studied uh, the sciences when he was an undergraduate at Harvard, but he spent his 20s and most of his 30s doing things very far from astronomy before he suddenly decided to focus on Mars. No, he wasn't a, a professional astronomer at all. Right, yeah. so so Lowell is inspired by Giovanni Schiaparelli to use some of his own wealth, open his own observatory with a very eventually his own telescope, very fine telescope, um, and to focus on Mars. And so when he looks at Mars, what does he find, and how does he explain it? Well, that's interesting. Uh, he he found essentially what Schiaparelli had found. And, so he uh, sees the lines too. Well, eventually he does, uh, but it's clear that he's looking real hard. And um, so, so what's interesting is that Lowell, despite having relatively few observations of his own uh, to draw upon, uh, started publishing. Uh, for, first of all, he formulated this theory of intelligent life on Mars, which is one of the uh, magical things about it. Is it's so straightforward that a 10-year-old uh, can, can understand them without any difficulty. It's not like general, general relativity or something. Well, so, so, so tell me what it is. So he came up with what a, a coherent theory to explain Schiaparelli's canals, right? These straight right, lines. Right. Uh, basically, he, he recognized that Mars was a dry planet, that it didn't have um, a thick atmosphere, and so what he thought was going on was that the polar caps would melt, the the Martians would capture this in in their canals. But you know later later he explained uh, that these these were pipes, and uh, you know that what we were actually seeing was vegetation strips of vegetation along these pipes, and then these dark areas would bloom with all of this vegetable uh, growth sustaining the Martian uh, civilization. So according to his theory, these these lines, these canals, these, these were not shipping canals, these were irrigation canals. And the yep. and the and what we're seeing, the vegetation growing along the edges essentially were crops, right? So these were the, yep. the Martians growing their crops because they needed the the irrigation water on their dry planet. They got the water from the polar ice caps. 
Yeah, precisely. And he was a, a very eloquent uh, and prolific writer and speaker. Well, that, that in and of itself, I think, is um, indicative of the reasons for his success because 1894, he started his observing run. Um, but during the summer and into the following year, he essentially did a blitzkrieg of uh, publications. He wrote five articles uh, that were published in Popular Astronomy. He wrote a, a series of five uh, that appeared in the Atlantic Monthly and a few odd articles in other uh, publications. Uh, and then um, as his uh, coup de grace, he published this book, Mars, which largely rehashes some of the same, even some of the same um, phrasing of, of these articles. Uh, but um, essentially, he just he just covered the waterfront of publications and got his ideas out there before anyone could react. And he made such a strong impression with this huge amount of writing that, as you say, was of literary high quality, uh, regardless of whether or not you you followed the the scientific arguments. And he and he banged the same points over and over and over again, so that you know there'd be no missing it. Well, now also, though, I think you have to look at where the public was at because it seems the public, a good chunk of the public, not only was fascinated by what Lowell was saying, but I think wanted to believe what he was saying. And and this is actually a lot of uh, what I'm exploring right now in a, in a book that I'm working on about this very same period and what has brought me to the Library of Congress. And that is what was happening on Earth that made people want to believe in the Martian civilization. And one thing that seems central as far as I'm concerned is Charles Darwin had published just a few decades earlier on his um, on, on natural selection, on evolution, and had really undermined traditional notions of a god who was directly involved in human affairs and created humans as the pinnacle of all evolution. And now, first of all, we have the idea that humans may be a way station to a higher form of being. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Martians supposedly were. They were even more evolved than humans. At the same time, where people felt a little unmoored and maybe not having a god looking over our shoulders, the Martians became, in essence, guardian angels. They were looking down on Earth. They, they might even be our saviors. They were so much more moral than we are, so much more knowledgeable, so much more technologically savvy. So I think the public really, it wasn't just Lowell, it was what the public wanted to believe. I think you're right. Uh, and uh, I, I would say you, you, you've, of, of course, explored that dimension of this whole uh, interesting subject further than I have. But um, what's interesting is that, that it, it quickly became... Uh, two sides of a coin because, you know, the benevolent kind of pointy-eared um, Martians that looked wise, you know, and, and uh, had, had uh, resolved all of these things in a pacifistic way uh, quickly gave way to the more intriguing possibility that was grasped by H.G. Wells, and that is that they, they were also a potential threat, uh, something ominous. Right. And, and, of course, uh, that would play out uh, spectacularly in 1938 in the War of the Worlds broadcast by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater. Uh, so so right. I, think, I think we've also, uh, there's also this more prurient side 
uh, to the Martians, which is that they, they fascinated us because of the, their potential menace as substitute devils and monsters. So, yeah. so I think they met a lot of, of uh, psychological needs uh, for, for people. And, and the, the mere fact that still, I, I think, uh, continues to tantalize us, that we aren't alone in the universe, you know, that, that there, there's, um, there are inhabitants out there. And Lowell was able to make that case rhetorically, uh, literarily, uh, and, and at least semi-scientifically in a way that made it eminently pos- uh, plausible. And, and so I think that even though scientists quibbled about it, and they ended up, of course, as pessimists often are, uh, more more right uh, than not, but but the the public was taken along. They 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 saw this train leaving the station, and they wanted on it. Well, and you're you're uh, uh, the perfect person to talk to about this, not only because of your the books you've written, but your professional background. You worked for decades as a psychiatrist. You're you're training you have training in medicine, and so from the standpoint of human not only human emotion but human perception what uh, and 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 also i should mention you wrote many years ago a real classic on this called planets and perception which also deals with the canal craze but what was it about the human brain and the human eye that helps explain what lowell was seeing on mars well i think in a nutshell and and uh that book that you mentioned was inspired by my own um attempt to try to understand better what what was behind the the canal illusion if you want to call it that which by that point had been shown to be the case and what was uh, apparent to me was as Lowell and others um, themselves often um, bore witness to in their writings the uh, people tended to think I think and and maybe still do that planets in the telescope are somehow kindred to still life compositions. You know, you just sit there and you carefully draw. And looking at these maps, which are extremely detailed and seem everything seems to be very well laid out and carefully positioned on the grid, like Scaparelli's maps, you, you tend to think that that's what they were doing. And, but the reality is they were basically seeing in glimpses of uh, little, little um, uh, kind of corner of the eye details, uh, you know, like, like a line between this point and that point. And then as soon as they, they, they uh, turned to try to get a better look, it was gone. Uh, and, and so they cumulatively built up an image uh, of these kinds of furtive details. And, and so uh, what, what you get into is actually the whole realm of perceptual uh, psychology and physiology. In other words, what we see uh, depends upon what our theory is about what what's out there, uh, and uh, you know, and and as uh, so so it gets into a real complex sort of uh, uh, realm uh, of of understanding how we perceive the world. And somebody has actually said we hallucinate a reality, and that is the same, you know, uh, apparatus in the brain that creates our, our sensory world uh, that, um, you know, that we, we live in um, is also that which is active that creates our dream world. And it also creates for people that I worked with for many years, uh, you know, the, the kind of delusions and hallucinations. So were the canals, were these fine lines purely optical illusions? 
Well, I think the Lowell's were largely optical illusions. Um, if you look at Mars with a really good telescope or if you look at its surface on like a globe of Mars by a spacecraft uh, with, with, with um, that level of detail, what you see is a very subtly textured uh, surface that has little splotches and uh, variations in tone. Uh, and that, that essentially was the, the substratum of what Lowell then, uh, with, with his seeing this by glimpses and with this strong desire to believe there were these linear markings on Mars, uh, was, was uh, then, then uh, able to see as illusions. But it wasn't just Lowell who saw the canals on Mars. Of course, Schiaparelli saw the lines earlier. Not everyone saw them, but there were other astronomers who looked through a telescope. They saw the lines too. So we're not just talking about one person who's set on a theory. Some, I mean, was there something going on with the human eye as well? Yeah, the eye, eye and brain. Now, the human eye um, is, is fast, but it isn't instantaneous. I mean, you know, when you when you look at uh, a program on a on a TV set nowadays, it's about eight frames per second, and that uh, limit in terms of how fast the eye is is what causes us to perceive out of out of discontinuous picture frames a, a kind of a seamless continuous movement. So so essentially, uh, these guys were using very slow by our standards of today, uh, a very slow uh, imaging system, that of the eye and the Their brain. Their eyes, you mean? Yep. Mm-hmm. And they were also, because because the information was, was only um, clearly visualized in very short periods of, of very perfect seeing, they, they were only really uh, getting a small amount of information forwarded to the brain, and then the brain had to sort of try to fill in the gaps and, and uh, make sense of it. Uh, right, now, and when you use the word seeing, you mean in an astronomical sense, and that is that the, right, right, the, yep. the roiling atmosphere makes it so that you can't see so well all the time, and so it, under poor seeing conditions, the view of another planet may flit in and out, and it's only when it flits in that suddenly Schiaparelli or Lowell or someone else might say, oh, there's a canal that they saw yep. for a tiny fraction of a second. Yeah, and and then it becomes a little bit of a matter of auto-suggestion, uh, really, because uh, as as a person, um, you know, keeps, keeps um, studying this fluctuating disk, uh, they're going to they're going to have uh, repetitive uh, visions of the same or other other um, canals, uh, and and so they're they're, they're gradually going to build up what's essentially a fictitious picture that's consistent as we were talking about, uh, but but is also um, completely fictitious and uh, and it really takes a larger uh, telescope and better conditions to to break through that. the The sad thing is that Lowell didn't ever want to get out of his little. Um, hermetically sealed conceptual system. And, and so he kept doggedly repeating himself. He said in, in one of the last things he wrote in, in 1916 when he prematurely died of a, a massive uh, hemorrhagic stroke, but you know everything that we've seen since 1894 in 22 years has confirmed what, what we believed then. You know? and, right, right, so he was int- intellectually stubborn. 
Yeah. Well, so so Lowell, really for much of the first decade of the 20th century, he was taken quite seriously by a lot of people, certainly in the public, if not all astronomers, clearly. Um, he died in 1916, as you said. Um, at that time, his hypothetical Martian civilization had pretty well fallen into disfavor among, um, I would say, most astronomers. Um, and the idea that you know, that the lines were canals was not taken too seriously. But still, through much of the 20th century, there remained the idea that Mars probably had life. And there were maybe not intelligent life. And there remained the idea that Mars was covered with strange lines of some sort. And then things changed again in the mid-1960s. And that's when we finally get our first close-up view of Mars. NASA sends the Mariner 4 space probe. It goes whizzing by Mars and takes pictures on its way past. And what did it find? Well, it found a barren crater-strewn uh, surface that looked for all the world like the moon, like the highlands of the moon. It looked old. It looked battered. And there was no, not only no sign of cities and and. <laughs> and great fields of of crops, but not even straight lines, not even things that that, that are not canals, but could look like what, what Lowell drew. Yeah, it was, it was utter, utterly uh, devastating. I, I actually remember Mariner 4's, you know, uh, flyby of Mars. I, I was already interested in astronomy at the time. I was 10. And uh, I remember uh, the eve of the the flyby, talking to my brother, uh, and and we were just talking about what was likely to be found, you know, by by the flyby. And I was hopeful. I mean, I, Lowell's Lowell's writings had captivated me, and uh, I, I was even uh, all those years later. All, I mean, all those years Lowell later, had been yeah, dead yeah, for uh, yeah. half a century. Um, you know, and and uh, admittedly, the the books that were accessible to me in the local branch library were a few years out of date. But those ideas were still there. And you know, you're a kid; you're ten years old. Uh, but anyway, so the Mariner Four uh, flew by Mars, and I remember being as devastated as if you know I had been a kid told there was and. and compellingly told that there was no Santa Claus. I mean, it was a real uh, kind of a grieving out process for me as a kid. And uh, my, yeah. So, so, you know, uh, I think, I think the starkness of those images and they were gray kind of, um, you know, fuzzy pictures that were really bleak looking. Uh, you know, they looked Mars in those images looked kind of like you know maybe maybe a an area of a World War One battlefield you know in one of those uh, you know early nineteen tens images uh, taken when there was no color film and it was just utterly stark uh, and and uh, forbidding you know and and so it was it was that that's the um, the way that it impacted just a kid. But on the other hand, I don't think that professional scientists of the time uh, reacted much uh, differently uh, to, to those images. That was the era which really sort of finally shut the last sliver of hope for, for Lowell's canals and so on. And, and it started us on this new era of Mars exploration, which is, is what we're still into. 
And your book goes very much into the next phase of exploration, yep, yep. but that I'm going to hold for my next interview. So to, to wrap up, though, looking back on the, the whole Mars craze at the turn of the last century, uh, which had such a profound cultural effect, what do you see as the lessons? Do you see that, it, is it a cautionary tale of of people being misled by emotion and, and improper perception? Or is it, is it maybe a strangely uplifting tale? Well, I think it's both. I knew I was going to say that. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, but it, it certainly is a cautionary tale. It shows how, um, you know, how, how, susceptible uh, to to illusion and error uh, we are uh, as a species and how easily, especially when our emotions get involved, how easily we can deceive ourselves. And, and uh, but on the other hand, I think, I think that it uh, is uplifting as well in, in the same way that the cathedrals of the Middle Ages are uplifting. I mean, ultimately, they show an aspiration of the human spirit to something greater than itself. And I think, I think, with regard to the the canals of Mars, they they show the human spirit at its best. They they show our inquisitiveness, our wanting to make contact with with uh, something out there uh, that that is greater than ourselves, and and to understand our place in the scheme of things, uh, wherever that might lead. I mean, I love the whole thing. Well, Bill Sheehan, it's been a real pleasure. I mean, you have written so many great books about Mars and other the other planets. I tell you, one day when there are libraries on Mars, there will be a shelf of recommended reading and your books will be prominently displayed there. Uh, so I want to thank you again for your time today. Well, David, it's been, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, best wishes for your book, which which is eagerly awaited. And uh, I, I, I can only... Imagine the fun you're having with exploring all of those uh, pathways and byways of, of the history of, of culture. William Sheehan is the co-author with Jim Bell of the book Discovering Mars, a history of observation and exploration of the Red Planet. In the next episode, we'll move the conversation forward from the Mars craze of the past to the Mars excitement today. Once again, both scientists and the public see Mars as a possibly living planet, although, of course, one inhabited by a very different sort of life than that imagined by Percival Lowell. My guest next time will be planetary scientist Sarah Stewart-Johnson. Her book is called The Sirens of Mars. This is Space on the Page, a podcast from the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. Our original music was composed and performed by Andrew Briner. I'm David Barron. See you next time.